Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Welcome to the Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. And in today's episode, we will discuss alcohol and food policies. The discussion today is in special honor of the World Obesity Day. So in the past decade, since 1975, the prevalence of obesity has actually tripled. And among children and adults, it is uh, fivefold, uh, and adolescents, sorry, it is fivefold higher than it used to be. And in fact, more people now are overweight or obese uh, than people who are normal weight. And alcohol and obesity are actually twin risk factors for liver disease, especially in low socioeconomic populations. Both diseases, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and alcoholic liver disease are preventable. So our discussion today will be on the prevention on public health and policy measure to prevent these two diseases and the risk factors. So I'm very happy to have with us today great faculty of experts in hepatology, policy and public health in different fields related to liver disease, including alcohol, NAFLD and nutrition. So let me introduce the faculty. We will start with Professor Nick Sharon, a visiting professor of hepatology at King's College London and clinical advisor at the Department of Health. Uh, he is a leading researcher in public health, which I had the pleasure to work with in several publications. Next is Professor Jeff Lazaros from Barcelona, which is the head of health system research group at IS Global. And then we have Professor Elena Cortes Pinto, which is a pathologist and is actually the current president of the United European Gastroenterology. And lastly, we will have a video from Dr. Sandro De Maio from Australia, which is a medical doctor and a policy and public health expert and advocate, especially in the promotion of healthy lifestyle. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, so Nick, let me start uh, with the question, first question uh, for you. What is the burden of alcoholic liver disease? Is it increasing and why? Um, I think probably the best thing to do is to share my screen and, and show you the answer to that question. So what this graph does is it splits uh, liver mortality in the WHO European region into different groups. And you can see that there are very marked differences between uh, individual countries. You have some countries like Sweden and Scandinavian countries that have very low levels of liver mortality. They've always had very low levels of liver mortality uh, and they have very strict alcohol control policies. Uh, because without those policies, they probably drink an awful lot more than than, than they do. You have uh, very interesting, some countries like Mediterranean countries, France, Spain, Italy, which used to have really high levels of liver mortality, going back into the 50s and 60s, much, much higher than they are on this graph. Uh, and liver mortality there has decreased. Uh, and alongside that decrease in liver mortality has been a marked decrease in the consumption of wine. And actually, if you look at the types of wine that are being drunk, what's happening is people are drinking a lot less cheap wine and they're drinking more, more expensive wine. And the value of the wine market has actually stayed the same or gone up. 
So there's a win-win scenario going on there. You have unfortunate countries like the UK and Finland, which used to have very low levels of liver mortality, and liver mortality has been going up there. And again, we know that the main driver for that has been government policy in the UK, making alcohol cheaper uh, as a result of tax cuts, and in Finland, making alcohol cheaper as a result of the EU and cross-border trade with Estonia, bringing in cheap alcohol, and they had to bring down their alcohol taxation. And then you have Eastern Europe, where levels of liver mortality have always been very high, and they went even higher uh, as these countries became more prosperous, particularly when they joined the EU, some of them, uh, and, and now levels of liver mortality are starting to drop off in those countries. Mm-hmm. Nick, I would like to ask you, we know that uh, the, there is late presentation of liver disease, unlike many other chronic liver diseases, or, or rather, sorry, other dis- chronic diseases in general, What is the meaning of that for prevention, for the potential to do prevention? It's it's stunning, really, that people haven't paid more attention to this because every liver doctor knows when they do a ward round, the vast majority of their inpatients have come in as emergencies. And those people, on the whole, they weren't aware they had liver disease before they first came in as an emergency. When we looked at this, In the UK, we found that 75% of people who die of cirrhosis are admitted as an emergency for their first presentation of liver disease. So we're simply not picking liver disease up. And actually, the system is broken. Because if you look at the people who come to liver clinics, they're people with a mild elevation in liver enzymes, most of whom will never develop significant liver disease. So we're ignoring the people that we should be contacting and, 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 and assessing who are developing cirrhosis, and we're spending all of our time, wasting our time, seeing people who are never really going to uh, develop a significant problem. So we've got a ma- we have a major problem, and it's a major problem uh, in every country in Europe, and part of it is the failure to develop liver disease in primary care and to, and to pick up people in the community. I don't know if my colleagues want to pick up on that at all. Yeah, do you like to add something, Elena or Jeff, to this point? Well, I completely agree uh, with uh, what Nick said. Uh, and uh, yes, I think this is uh, this is a major problem. Uh, and of course, it very much depends on the taxation policies that uh, maybe we will discuss later on. But it's probably the more important uh, policy. It's the taxing uh, and the price of alcohol, as Nick uh, just said. Thank you. Jeff, I would like to ask you about the burden of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Is it also increasing? Is it also a major issue? And is there an also a great potential for prevention? Thank you. Yeah, there's, there's actually two recent meta-analyses published, um, one recently in hepatology, that show that it has been increasing. There, there are challenges with the data, but it is increasing in the blocks of periods studying studied with estimates now of one in three adults, one in eight children to have fatty liver disease, poorer estimates related to advanced fibrosis, but we do have some modeling that show the percentages that will continue on. So as obesity is increasing, as you mentioned, childhood obesity is increasing, those children are growing up and they're getting fatty liver disease. And is it preventable? It's, It's entirely 
um, preventable. You know, this is related, and I know Dr. DeMaio is going to probably speak to this later, but this is related to, you know, the, the food that's made available to us, the challenges in, in exercise, all of the issues that you're working on related to the challenges of lifestyle modifications, the, the growth in sedentary lifestyles, and so on. It is, I agree completely that it is preventable, but yet it is so difficult to change uh, lifestyle habits in such a toxic environment, and we will devote more time for this uh, issue. Um, Nick, what do we know about the types of alcohol-related harm? Um, so, so alcohol is, uh, is, is toxic, it's a carcinogen, and it's a drug of dependency. And, uh, and human beings have been drinking alcohol happily for about 10,000 years. Uh, and so show no sign of uh, of stopping soon. So it's quite complicated, but actually you can make it very simple because essentially there are four main types of alcohol-related harm. Uh, there are the harms that come to people because they drink too much on an occasion and do something stupid or something stupid happens to them. So this tends to be young people, and these are people involved in, in violence, in car accidents, uh, and and trauma and those sort of things, and they come in through emergency departments. Uh, there's uh, the problems associated with high blood pressure uh, and hemorrhagic stroke, and that tends to affect older people. Uh, alcohol is a carcinogen. Perhaps the most important uh, aspect of of of, uh, of alcohol in terms of cancer is breast cancer in women, uh, and around about ten percent of of breast cancers in women are alcohol related. Uh, and and so it, it becomes a, a major issue. You can actually you can actually find a, a cigarette equivalent of alcohol. Um, uh, a bottle of wine is the equivalent of smoking five cigarettes uh, in men and ten cigarettes in women, and that's because of breast cancer that makes up the extra five five cigarettes. Uh, and then you have liver disease, um, and liver disease is very different. And again, if I show my if I share my screen. Uh, I can show you uh, what I mean. Nick, in the meantime, can I ask you what is the difference? What makes the dose-response relationship between alcohol and liver disease different as compared to other diseases? As well, that's for example, breast cancer. It doesn't. My my PowerPoint doesn't want to work. That's that's the picture that I wanted to show you because uh, for 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 uh, acute acute problems for cancer for high blood pressure, there's a linear relationship, uh, and it's a low risk. And it affects a large number of people who drink a relatively moderate amount of alcohol. That's where the majority of the disease sits. For liver disease, the dose response is completely different. It's a uh, it's an exponential dose response. So it starts as a linear, uh, a, a, a low-level gradient, but then it gets steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper until you reach the point where if you're drinking sufficient al alcohol, then there's around about a 30% chance of mortality. That's very, very high. That impacts on the type of people that get liver disease. So the sorts of people that we see on our ward rounds who are in hospital with alcohol-related liver disease aren't drinking a few glasses of wine a week. They're very heavy drinkers. Uh, in my unit in, in, uh, in uh, Southampton, the average intake of alcohol in people with alcohol-related cirrhosis was 120 uh, uh, units uh, a week. So that's 10 
10 uh, mills uh, is a is a UK unit. And so and so you have a, a population of people who are drinking really very high amounts and they're the people that are that are uh, uh, developing liver problems uh, and they're drinking the cheapest alcohol that they can find and they're spending a high proportion of their incomes very often because of the link with inequality on alcohol and as such they are exquisitely sensitive to price control uh, policies in a way that the other alcohol related harms are not Great. Elena, would you like to add about uh, how this pattern of drinking and liver damage uh, impacts the, the policies that needed to be taken? Yeah, uh, I think this is a, a very important point uh, because, in fact, uh, measures such as the minimum unit pricing affect mostly uh, those heavy, harmful drinkers because those are the ones that tend to drink the cheap alcohol because they really need it uh, and uh, usually they do not have so much money uh, and so they drink the cheap wine. Uh, however, I think that it's very difficult for policymakers to understand this concept. Uh, what is the minimum unit pricing? I've tried to explain this to, to people that are not in, in the field, uh, and they always consider that uh, this can decrease uh, the alcohol drinks revenue from each country. Uh, so they often do not want to impose this kind of measures uh, because they are afraid uh, uh, of this. Uh, however, of course, this is not true. I think that Nick already mentioned it, uh, because uh, first, uh, the related health costs of excessive alcohol consumption very much uh, out, uh, outpass uh, what could be the diminishing uh, of the drinking revenues. And also, uh, of course, uh, if, uh, we, if we sell more expensive alcohol drink, uh, drinks, uh, uh, the revenues could be the same. So I think it's very important, this uh, factor for considering, in fact, uh, the minimum unit pricing a very effective uh, measure. Thank you. Uh, Jeff, I would like to discuss a little bit, uh, Nick, so you wanted to add something? Yeah, no, I was just going to say there's something called the Pareto principle or 80-20 rule. Uh, and it works for, for all products. It works for alcohol, it works for for, for potato crisps and lawnmowers, which is that 80% of the value uh, of any product is consumed by the 20% of heaviest consumers. And so the drinks industry are really reliant on people who are drinking too much to provide the majority of their profits. And this is one of the reasons why they're so reluctant to endorse effective public health policies. Okay, thanks. Uh, Jeff, um, we know that alcohol and obesity affect uh, more badly low socioeconomic populations. What is the reasons and how can policy measures help to um, help these populations specifically? Well, well thank you. It's, it's complex and it feeds a little bit into what um, you know, Nick said. There's a lot of targeting of particular populations, the populations that drink, and it becomes you know, a spiral, a little bit of a chicken and the egg. So as people are, are drinking more, they're, they're targeted more and people with a lower education who don't understand the impact on health outcomes of, of alcohol or, or ultra processed food. I mean, these are 
you know, at least ultra processed food is, is a complex concept for a lot of people, um, you know, then they will continue to be the ones, you know, buying that food. But, but, you know, I was reading a recent study and it was so interesting that, you know, what can we do about it? There was, you know, the, the shops that sold junk food the were in a much higher percentage close to schools and a much closer proximity than in others. And some cities have said, you actually, we're going to limit, we're not going to close the shops that are there, but we're going to limit how many new shops can be, you know, um, allowed to function near schools in low income areas because they're targeting those children. It's cheaper to buy a bag of crisps for one euro, you know, and an orange sometimes for a euro 10. So, um, so, you know, they make it so easy to eat unhealthily, to, um, to, to, to drink a lot. Yes, there are even studies showing maps how all the, uh, all the bads or the bad commodities, uh, alcohol, uh, cigarettes and ultra processed foods and soft drinks, um, they stick together in certain areas of low socioeconomic population. So it's very clear that this is, these are the populations that they target. Also in advertising, they specifically target children from low socioeconomic parts of the society. This is amazing. Um, and I would like to, to go back to, to Nick and ask you, is there a synergy between alcohol, obesity, and liver disease, and at what levels? Yeah, I, th th there's a range of synergies, actually. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a clinical synergy between alcohol and obesity as far as the liver is concerned. Uh, and essentially what it means is that if you're obese, the liver toxicity of alcohol increases, and in fact, it doubles. So if you're obese, as far as your liver's concerned, a bottle of wine becomes two bottles of wine. Uh, and so people who are obese have a, have a different threshold uh, and, a, and a rate at which they develop alcohol-related uh, liver harm. And interestingly, that doesn't affect other aspects of alcohol-related harm or obesity-related harm. So we don't see that synergy in cancer, for example. Um, there's a behavioral synergy in that, in the, and you've mentioned this already, in that people who drink too much tend to be smokers and people who are smokers have a higher incidence of drinking too much and also have a higher incidence of being overweight. And so, and so these conditions group together uh, and you have people with multiple risks. What I think is probably the, the most interesting and important synergy is is at a policy level in that we know an awful lot about what works for smoking we know an awful lot about what works for alcohol and we're sort of guessing a lot about what is likely to work for obesity because obesity is a much more recent public health problem than the other two what works for smoking is number one price cheap cigarettes Number two, marketing, particularly to children. And number three, availability. And from studies of alcohol, we know that exactly the same things. Number one, price. Number two, marketing. Number three, availability. And a, a betting man would probably say that we're going to find the same for obesity in due course. Can I just add to what Nick said? Uh, I think there's a, a very, there's a difference, a very significant 
difference between smoking and uh, alcohol uh, or food. And the major difference is that tobacco, as a name, is to go to zero. So all the policy measures, all our efforts should go to zero. While with alcohol drinks, alcoholic drinks, or to food, there are mixed, so it's not zero, it's not zero or, or something. And that makes more complicated to, to make policies uh, because there's always uh, uh, this, this kind of, uh, of difference. And it, it's, I think it should be more comparable, and I've heard this, uh, that policies for alcohol and for food could be more comparable with policies regarding driving, uh, because nobody will stop driving their cars. But as at the time that we put in place good policies for uh, for driving like the belts or this so the, the the car accidents very much decreased so if we could put in place measures that create the environments for people to drink much less or to to eat uh, more healthy food. Uh, I think, uh, uh, of course, I agree with what Nick said, uh, that in some way it has many similarities, but I think there is uh, uh, an important difference because I, I really do not believe, although I have discussed this in, in many different forums, that we, we will ever tend or want to have zero consumption of alcohol. This is too much in our tradition, in our habits. It comes also from religious principles. So what I think we need is really to create the environment, and that is taxing, and that is pricing, and it is advertising to reduce the consumption. Uh, and to tobacco, it's really different. But I think Nick wants to say... Uh, Jeff, I think uh, Jeff has something to add. Yes. Please. I'll just add to what Helena said because it's really what we call harm reduction, right? So, you know, there's different policy measures we can take. Like you said, you know, advertising shouldn't target children. There was a time when adult magazines were sold and they weren't sold at the height of children. We can make alcohol more difficult to reach and difficult to display. Those are policy initiatives, you know, that can be taken. Um, we know that people who buy alcohol from a supermarket after nine at night tend to be drinking it that night in some countries in Europe. And Nick, you know, I think this fits in a little bit with the initial graph you showed, like in the north in Denmark, you know, you can't buy, um, you know, a bottle of wine and beer at, at nine at night in a supermarket. You can in a bar or a restaurant, of course, but you can here in Spain and then people go out and drink it and drink more. So there's a lot of policy initiatives we can take. And what's interesting is, you know, I was just reading, um, you know, a study from from the end of December, and it said, you know, the alcohol industry has met with EU institutions, you know, over over 270 times in an eight year period, 14 times with civil society. And I think with civil society, they even include us, you know, at, at easel. So, so not much. My guess is that alcohol industries also asked to meet with them a lot more than us. There's a lot of lobbying, and it was interesting also to read last week in the BBC that, um, you know, when Ireland said they were going to um, have labels talking about the negative effect of, of alcohol even causing cancer, you know, six EU countries tried to block it. And I was mentioning it to someone and they said, oh, you mean, in, you know, Spain was one of the countries, so Spain was blocking it in Spain. No, Spain was blocking it in Ireland. Because, you know, these are things the EU agrees on, you know, common warnings and labeling and so on. So we have countries where the alcohol industry is very strong, you know, actually exerting influence on, on other countries who want to do the right thing, like warning labels. 
So this is what you call the commercial de determinants of uh, health. Yes, that's, that's a great Absolutely. example. And and Jeff, what, what obvious decisions are not taken? What are the obvious decisions that somehow are not taken? Well, in general, um, you know, warning labels. We look at the warning labels on, on cigarettes now, you know, they're getting bigger and bigger. I think people actually don't see them anymore because they're so big and they're so used to them. But, you know, explaining what's in the food we're buying, you know, so not just the ingredients, but actually breaking it down in simple language so people understand, you know, what's in a hot dog and what the dangers of a hot dog are. And then they can take that decision. And some people will, will do it. Like Helena said, it's, it's harm reduction. A lot of people just don't understand that eating bag after bag of crisps is wrong. I mean, it's hard for us, I think, to, to realize that. But when you get to, you know, the poorest of the poor and lower socioeconomic groups, they don't, they don't understand what healthy food is. Um, there's also subsidies of, of healthy food. So I, I do believe in information, um, you know, for these populations. But I also believe that, you know, we're putting the onus on a lot of individuals that will have a tough time making those decisions. So while we'd like to see behavior change, I do believe that policy is, is the way to go. We have to just make it harder to get alcohol in so many different ways that like you were outlining, you know, Helena from taxation to advertising and so on. We have to make it harder to get um, unhealthy food and we need to determine what that unhealthy food is and make people aware of it, but make it more difficult to, to get. Absolutely. Uh, Nick, you wanted to add something? Yeah, yeah no, uh, just following on from what Jeff was saying. I mean, the drinks industry tried incredibly hard to block uh, the minimum unit price policy in Scotland. Uh, and they managed to delay it for six years by taking it through the courts, and it and it was uh, it was subject to uh, a, a decision by the European Court of Justice, which I think is really interesting because in order for them to approve MUP, which they did, um, the UK government had to show that MUP was more effective than any other policy. It was more effective than taxation. It was more effective than anything that countries could do. And so, and the UK Supreme Court then backed that verdict as well. So, you know, as a policy, it's been one of the most tested policies within public health in legal terms. You know, we know that it's highly effective and it's also highly targeted. It doesn't affect the majority of drinkers. Thank you. Jeff, I wanted to ask you a little bit a different question. We know there, there's a lot of coexistence of alcoholic and non-alcoholic liver disease. What are the, the ideal pathways of care to manage this uh, situation? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if we looked at the continuum of care, it's first, it's, it's identification. Um, and we have a huge problem. I mean, by far the vast majority of people with fatty liver disease, whatever the cause is, um, you know, are, are unaware of it. Um, you know, and next it's understanding, you know, if we have fibrosis and advanced fibrosis and if we need to, you know, risk stratified specialist care um, or not. But I think, you know, going back a step, we need to recognize that things just aren't black and white. I mean, a lot of people with so-called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are drinking and they're probably drinking more um, than the amount that's accepted in the definition of, of an FLD. So, you know, whatever we're going to call the different conditions, we need to realize that there is an overlap. And although there's specialists in each area, we need to be recognizing, you know, that, that there will be you know, multiple ideologies, uh, there will be a lot of dual um, conditions, and then we need to be able to treat, you know, people and not just treat their individual condition and sometimes people will be diagnosed with NAFLD and 
against our best recommendations, they will start drinking maybe even more. So we need to realize they'll be back and back and forth and people who are drinking may you know, be eating or change their eating habits um, from one year to, to another. So it's, it's, it's very complex, I think, the way we have it set out now um, with a lot of our guidelines and a lot of our, our specialist care pathways that aren't so patient-centered. These are hard conversations to have and they're hard in some settings with family doctors where it truly is a doctor of the whole family and it's hard in some countries where you know, alcohol is, more, is less permissive. Thanks, Nick. You wanted to add something? Yeah, just um, just how important liver disease is, because it it tends to kill people, young people, middle aged people, people you know really in, in in their full productive working life. If you look at years of life lost, years of working life lost, um, only ischemic heart disease uh, kills more people than liver disease. So if you look at overall death numbers, then liver disease is, is smaller than a lot of the other causes. But if you look at the things that are killing people in middle age and in, in you know towards uh, the, the end of their working life, then liver disease really is extremely important and governments really need to take it a lot more seriously. Great. And the last question to, to all of you, and Elena, you especially as the, as the UEG president, if you could do one thing, one advice to policymaker that you know he would accomplish, what would it be? Well, uh, I, I think that uh, um, maybe it would be to implement the minimum unit pricing uh, as a measure to to decrease uh, the use of um, of alcohol. But I, I just wanted to say that as UEG president, we are taking a lot of action near the, the European Union. Uh, and what I think it's also very important is to give uh, the, politi the policymakers the numbers. And so we have the White Book from UEG, and we have the Apple Health one, and now the Apple Health two, and I think these are very important to demonstrate to the politicians that sometimes do not, are not really aware of the importance and when do people die, as Nick just said. Uh, so I think this is where uh, there can be a difference. However, at the national level, I think so far we have not been able to be so effective. Thank you, Jeff. Well, I would tell them that they can have their cake and they can eat it too. They just shouldn't eat the cake every day. It shouldn't be a really big piece and they should know, you know, exactly what's in it. Very nice. Food labeling. Uh, Nick? And alcohol labeling, of course. Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, introducing MUP is the most effective and cost-effective way uh, to reduce liver mortality. And there's absolutely no doubt about that. But I would really like to see people having the basic consumer right of knowing what's in an alcoholic drink. Okay, fantastic. So uh, now we are uh, going to hear a recording of uh, Dr. Sandro De Mayo about the challenges of health and nutrition and what policy measures can be uh, taken to improve the environment, the nutritional environment for both children and uh, adults. First of all, thank you very much for having me as part of this important discussion. My name is Dr. Sandro De Mayo. I'm the CEO here in Australia at the Victorian Health Promotion Foundation, a government statutory agency focused on prevention. Uh, in, uh, in the state of Victoria and Australia. 
So what are some of the problems today facing uh, with regards to our food environments? Over the last 50 years, our food systems, the diets we eat and the environments in which we find, uh, engage with, uh, consume and waste food, our food environments have completely transformed. We've gone from a world where it was largely uh, localised uh, uh, diets based on, you know, steeped in a long time, uh, deep food cultures, uh, Indigenous diets and highly diverse diets, diets that were often very plant-based or plant-forward, uh, that were uh, built around whole foods, often very seasonal in nature, um, and nutrient dense jump forward though our food systems have been westernized commodified and globalized uh, the diets that we eat today almost in almost every part of the world uh, are rich in ultra processed foods calorie dense but nutrient poor there the food has gone from really something that added many decades uh, of life to our life expectancies to being a major threat to global health. Our food and our food systems now pose a major ecological, environmental, cultural, and in many ways, economic uh, challenge to global populations. And food-related disease uh, continues to be a leading contributor to global uh, to global burdens around the world. Who pays the price? Uh, the populations and individuals, communities and families uh, that, you know, that, that started most in, in the most precarious uh, or structurally uh, um, marginalised position. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the potential of what we're seeing uh, at the moment in terms of the fallout of the shifts and changes in our food system, in our diets, in our nutrition, uh, and ultimately uh, in all of the sequelae that result, whether it's economic uh, or uh, sustainable development or health opportunities that result, are going to be worst felt by uh, the populations least able to cope. Well, the good news is that, there, that, that a lot can be done, but there will be no single silver bullet. So we know from the 2019 Eat Lancet Commission that, you know, when we're thinking about transforming our global food systems, we do need to look at improving efficiency through uh, farming practices and growing the right food in the right places. Uh, within that, though, also reflecting the other sources or uses of land, including ecosystem services and, and, and through um, you know, a, a truly interconnected and interdependent global food system. We need to reduce food waste and loss. Uh, a third of food is wasted. Um, and this has an enormous uh, um, effect on the health opportunity for populations, but also on our environment. And finally, of course, we need to work to shift populations to healthier diets. Diets that in many ways um, return or or uh, are inspired by the traditional diets of many countries that, le that lean into um, greater regional and local variation uh, that are more that are, are likely to be 
more um, uh, uh, equitable from a from a um, an economic and a gender perspective that are more reflective of cultural and local values and priorities and and are likely very often to be healthier and more sustainable and resilient. Certainly a major challenge is uh, the commercial determinants of health, the concentration of power and wealth uh, in our global food system in the hands of such a few. Um, you know, this has allowed us to achieve momentum and scale. It's allowed us to improve efficiency and derive more calories for more people and feed more people across the world. So there have been enormous benefits to the globalisation uh, and commercialization of our food system. But the challenge is that, um, you know, economic metrics alone cannot continue to, uh, to be the sole measure of success for our global food system. And so how do we wind back some of that? How do we work with governments to, uh, to level the playing field uh, and to make, you know, other imperatives like health and ecological imperatives uh, social and, and equity imperatives as important, if not more important, uh, than uh, economic imperatives in our food system. How can we work better to succeed in changing the food environment and implementing changes in Europe and globally? Well, I think the first step is really having a conversation like this in this sort of environment. Clinicians, health leaders, um, you know, liver experts talking about and connecting our work and your work to the global food system. This week in Melbourne, we will bring together a multi-sectoral uh, coalition of actors from the uh, from farmers to uh, clinicians and medical doctors in the same room to start thinking about opportunities to connect dots, to catalyze action and to achieve success collectively. Fantastic. I think it was a really great uh, summary. Thank you, Dr. De Mayo, of the nutritional uh, uh, problems nowadays and uh, the, the actions that can be done to improve the nutritional environment. Um, we are coming to the end of this uh, great session, and I would like to really thank you all for this fascinating uh, and educating uh, discussion. Thank you so much. And I really would like to thank also the audience. Have a good evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.